Kim Suki. We're looking at any of the governments around the world dealing with international relations. We're looking at sanctions. We're looking at people that want to talk about North Korea and anything that might happen there. APT 38 and Hermit, those are guys going after a lot of blockchain stuff right now. You'll see Hermit also dealing with like defense industrial base. You'll see a lot of DOD or D, anything around the world. You'll see different like, oh, did they have a good tank? Hermit, get them, you know, which also share kind of the similar stuff for Andariel. Andariel has a ransomware aspect, but they're going after missiles and they touch on ransomware as it regards to hospitals, which is very odd, but they're trying to make money just to support themselves and then immediately go back to their missile funding research. One threat that I really think cannot be overstated is, is the IT worker threat that we mentioned earlier, because there's thousands, if not tens of thousands, of North Koreans out there trying to get jobs at legitimate companies, and they're succeeding. We see where they've gotten gigs from real companies. We see where they've deployed smart contracts on behalf of others. We see this. And so if I am a network defender and I want to find GPRK IT workers in my network, I'm going to look for tools like AnyDesk, I'm going to look for tools like TeamViewer, I'm going to look for those kind of remote desktop tools that are on the laptops for my remote employees. And then I want to see who is remoting into those machines. Welcome back to another episode of Mannion's Defender's Advantage podcast. I'm your host, Luke McNamara. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by two analysts here at Mandiant, Michael Barnhart and Joe Dobson. Barney, Joe, great to have you on today. Thanks for having us. Thanks, man. So we're going to talk about North Korean activity. Some of you may remember Barney from the episode we did a little over a year ago, Disentangling the DPRK. We had you and Eli on talking about uh, some of the activity that you guys were working on and sort of the internal task force around North Korean threat activity. So I thought it'd be good to get an update around what we've been seeing this year. You guys put out a blog earlier this year around some of the different uh, groups that we track and how they kind of map into the orgs. And then, of course, this has been, a, I think, a banner year continuing. One of the things that's been the hallmark of North Korean threat activity has been the the targeting of cryptocurrency, their usage, and focus on that. So. Joe, great to have you on here as well to, to dive into that. I think we'll probably get into some non-North Korean stuff as well as we look at the state of things. But Barney, to kind of kick us off, when we, and I think this is an interesting point I kind of want to highlight here, is I think we've, when you look at the activity that we've been reporting on from not just North Korean threat actors, but for what we see from China, what we see from Iran, I think we're doing a lot more to kind of map the individual UNCs and APTs to where possible where we get visibility, where we have information that come from indictments and sanctions, or in the case of North Korea, defector statements, to try to map those to the sort of organizational entities that we know exist uh, within the various countries that were tracking this sort of activity. And I think that was one of the, the cool things in that, that blog you put out. But sort of since then, give folks a kind of high-level overview of what we've seen this year from some of the big clusters and groups. So again, we do like to break those things down into the, the you know the macro to the micro. We because like especially if you're a defender or if you're in a SOC or you're some type of C level you know executive, you're wanting to um, what you don't want to hear is you're protect against North Korea. It's like okay, great. You like like which one? Like we have so many. We got guys doing ransomware. We've got guys doing crypto jacking. We have guys doing uh, traditional cyber espionage. Don't give me a, a a Lazarus group protect against it. And I'm like okay, cool. 
So you try to whittle it down a little bit. So right now we are seeing a lot of changes since our last conversation. And really kind of that's, that is by design. North Korea, specifically Kim Jong-un, he, as soon as you, we've even had defectors say it probably even in the last episode where we talked about, they, as soon as South Korean and U.S. intel agencies in the West start figuring out a good grasp on North Korea, Kim Jong-un's like, change it, burn it all down, let's rebuild it. And so we aren't quite seeing that, but by the time we had put out that first org chart, it was already kind of outdated because they're already on to the next latest and greatest thing. One of the ones we talked about was that Bureau 325 on the last one. We labeled them internally as COVID Kim. Probably the best open source name for them would be Serium, but even them, that, that that's not quite the same group. We have seen a decline in them, whereas we have seen a spike in their original, because they were kind of an all-star group. And made up of various other APTs. So the and this was the group one, that was drawn from different components of some of the other yes. groups that we were tracking that seemed to be sort of a, a task force specifically for the targeting of COVID research that we and others have been reporting on that we saw during the pandemic. Yeah, exactly. And 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 then they kind of like did their own thing for a while and then they kind of stopped doing it. And whoever's running their taskers is like, well, don't go away just yet. We want you to go get to crypto stuff. We want to do a couple other things. And then it's slowly, we still see operations out of them, but we're starting to see a shift back to the traditional Kim Sookie on that one, seeing significant spikes in there, or we have a lot of good collection on the Kim Sookie front. We're developing really, really good collection strategies for Andariel, and those are starting to pay off. But one thing we have learned is, is that one, everyone has a hand in the crypto game, whether it's to fund themselves or it's to fund the regime. And that's where we can kind of break them off. So that traditional Lazarus group, which would be considered APT38, Temp Hermit, and Andariel, they're still up and running, but that Temp Hermit and APT38 aren't going to be as visible on the traditional, you know, the wet internet as we see it now. They really have gone after the blockchain. And so to attract them the best, especially APT38, you're going to have to shift your focuses to crypto tracking. And that's something we might not see like we would out of a Kim Suki or Andariel or one of these other guys. Tim Permit, the same way, you'll still see them on, on our side doing uh, espionage things, but they're they're big on the hacks right now. So they're going to continue hitting the blockchain to support the regime. And then everyone else is kind of piecemeal. We have Kim Suki doing crypto operations. A lot of that, as we have seen, and we have seen this with our eyes, they're doing that to fund themselves. And that's really, really important because it also lets you know that they're off on an island and they're out there by themselves to include Indariel. And Darlo was made famous this year because they were hitting healthcare organizations with ransomware. Now we, okay, another money-making venture. No, that also is starting to look like they're supporting themselves as well. So you have the guys using crypto to support their own operations. But then you have the greater guys like the 38s and the hermits of the world going, okay, we're not supplying ourselves. We're going to knock over something big, make sure that the weapons development and things within the regime are up and running. So that's kind of the shift we've seen. We know we still have 37 going around as aligned with the Ministry of State Security. We've got a lot of moving pieces, a lot of moving parts, but that's kind of where we're at right now. And uh, here at Mandiant, we have a very big focus right now on a couple of the groups, and we're having a lot of success there. And that's where I lean on Joe for some of these groups that we might not see on our traditional side. We want to like see on the blockchain side because wherever they're at, we're going to get after them. So we just got to figure out exactly where they're at and then we'll start focusing on that area. And I think we're doing a decent job right now. So I think you touched on this in the, in the last episode. And I think this was also something Fred mentioned when we did our series on the big four, which is sort of the nature of tracking North Korean threat groups. And one of the reasons why it can be very difficult with these different clusterings and why there's so many different unks is 
well, one, sort of the repetitive nature of their malware or the fact that it's very iterative. They'll, they'll borrow from code base of, of one family, but now it's being used operationally by a different group. This gets back to what you were saying at the beginning about, you know, if you're an organization, everyone from a network defender to, you know, executive, what are the specific groups that I want to focus on? Because some of them do things differently, but then there may be, you know, these overlaps that we see on the malware side that make it difficult to say this is this particular group or this particular, you know, threat cluster. What are some of those characteristics that you found to be, again, difficult in this sort of fast moving environment where you're seeing potential org changes that are happening on the back end, but you're trying to read that through what you see operationally, what you see on the malware side. Well, we're very fortunate in the situation here where it's it's kind of an undisguised uh, or a disguised kind of a didn't really see this coming here. But the, the two years that these guys have been outside of North Korea doing their collection operations, doing their things during the whole pandemic, you know, when it first started, you know, these guys don't talk to each other, do not talk to each other. They're a communist regime, all this stuff. Well, they've been out sitting outside the confines of North Korea for two years. And they're starting to get a little more comfortable. They're starting to talk a little bit more. They're starting to show a little more OPSEC here. They're starting to kind of maneuver around a bit. And you're actually seeing them kind of uh, do the things they're not supposed to do in a communist regime. And they're talking to their friends, which seems so, okay, whatever. But it does create a lot of uh, opportunities. And and if we're going to break down each group, I have them right here. Everyone that's dealing with anything in North Korea should be focused on financials for some way, shape, or form. Whether it be, you know, you're about to get ransomed or a Kim Sookie where you're going to get your credentials stolen for your bank account. The other guys for financials, you're going to be worried about crypto. But if we're looking at Kim, all of them being financially targeted, let's break it down. Kim Sookie, we're looking at any of the uh, governments around the world dealing with international relations. We're looking at sanctions. We're looking at people that want to talk about North Korea and anything that might happen there. APT38 and Hermit, those are guys going after a lot of blockchain stuff right now. You'll see Hermit also dealing with like defense industrial base. You'll see a lot of DOD or D, anything around the world. You'll see different like, oh, they have a good tank. Hermit, get them, you know, which also share kind of the similar stuff for Andariel. Andariel has a ransomware aspect, but they're going after missiles. And they touch on ransomware as it regards to hospitals, which is very odd, but they're trying to make money just to support themselves and then immediately go back to their missile funding research. And so 37 is more of an internal defector. I'm monitoring myself, Ministry of State Security. Propaganda efforts are going on and on and on. And that's kind of how they're all breaking off. Serium, or aka covid Ken, that Bureau 325, there's not a lot of open source reporting on it. We, we've had talks. We, want, we, we need more reporting come out about it. But it does seem like they're on the decline. And I think things are about to get interesting because, as we know, in the last uh, few days. But Joe, can I kick it over to you real quick? Yeah, I was going to say. So, you know, I'm I'm not a North Korea guy. I'm, I'm I'm a crypto and Web three guy. And I think one thing that's interesting when I'm working with Barney, looking at you know what North Korea is doing, so often you know when we talk to victims, they have optimism bias. That's where they say, "Oh, it's not going to happen to me." I'm not going to get targeted because I'm not a big company. I'm not a big organization. I don't have the data they want. But what we see over and over is there's no fish that's too small for them, right? They'll go after whoever they can, however they can, targets of opportunity as well to achieve their goals. And we see so much of that when it comes to financial data and crypto. There's a user out there and, and, and you know, crypto users should be aware that North Korea is out looking for any opportunity they can to steal their funds. Yeah, and we've chatted before offline about just what's 
potentially going on in their targeting selection because some of the the targets make sense when you look at like you know some of the historical exchange compromises and hacks that have occurred others seem to be smaller targets or weirder ones and you wonder how they found them or prioritize them and we're getting into that in a second specifically what we've seen from them target crypto but one of the things i wanted to return to was something you said barney which is because i think this is important not just for the north korean activity but when we look at other states that have groups that are potentially conducting financially motivated operations, specifically Iran, what we've seen from them of late in the last several years with ransomware, is the sort of uh, analysis around, is this for the purposes of bringing funds in for the state and to fund the regime, to fund their weapons program, as we believe is the case for a lot of the activity that we see in North Korea? Or is this often sometimes just you know to fund kind of their operations, to buy infrastructure, things of that nature? So when you're looking at that in the North Korean context, what are some of the things that you're taking into account to make that distinguishing you know, analysis one way or the other? One of the things that I thought was odd was that North Korea doesn't really do ransomware all that much. And if they are going to do it, I mean, everyone has had their, kind of their hands in it when they needed to. But we've only really seen Amdarial kind of do that. And whenever throughout the, the year, when we see all these, oh, healthcare being targeted by Maui, healthcare being targeted by Holy Ghost, all these different items, these ransomware components, we're like, okay, that's... It's weird. I mean, the crypto sniffs really seem to be bringing in the money. I don't know why they're kind of going back to this. And even that, they're like five-figure payouts. The same thing with one of the other uh, APTs, UNC-1069, which is sub to APT-38. They're going after like lower amounts of money, and we didn't understand why. And then we started working with some of our partners. We started looking at it, and they were, we all bringing our pieces of the puzzle together. And then we came to the conclusion that it is most likely our assessment that they're using the ransomware, just like Kim Suki is using their crypto heist. They're using it just to prop up themselves. Now, we've seen some of the Kim Suki things confirming these items, but with Andariel, you're just kind of taking an educated guess, and you're looking, and you're seeing it, and then you're seeing like how it pivots right from a healthcare's ransomware all the way over to the missile. Like You can see the steps at which they do it. And so it's not completely explicitly laid out there, but we're just kind of putting two and two together. on, uh, And also knowing that they... You know, when pandemic happened, if you were outside the country, Kim Jong-un said, God bless you. Figure out how to figure out how to do it because you're not getting any money from us. And everyone figured it yeah. all out. Joe, let's pivot a little bit and talk about what we've seen, again, specifically on the crypto side of what they've been doing. You know, now that sort of Barney teed up for us, what the, the landscape has been looking like for North Korean threat actors. I think historically where we've seen a lot of their activity play into targeting the crypto space has been some of the large exchange hacks. That seems to have changed a little bit this year. We seem to be seeing more bridge compromises. What's been your sense of kind of where they've put their focus on? You know, granted, a lot of, uh, you know, and what you were saying earlier is, you know, they'll focus on where they get money through a variety of different means. They're obviously doing a lot in the crypto space. But specifically what we've seen from them target crypto, where has been kind of the bulk of their efforts this year? I would say that the bridge heists, they, I think they surprised themselves with how successful they were. And you can see a little bit of that. That's, that's one of the beauties of having public blockchains is you can sit down, you can take a look at the actual transactions. And when you look at the movement of funds and you know the, the patterns within those movements, you can start to see where with one of the, the bigger bridge heists they did earlier this year, I think that they were surprised it was so successful. They were surprised they got so many funds out of it. And it took them a moment to adjust and account for that. And with the second... Uh, larger bridge heist that they did, you see that they're a little bit more prepared for it, 
right? They had more wallets already set up. They had more automation set up because you can see, you know, when they're pushing things through mixers, you, you can see that it's automated when every six to nine minutes they're, they're pushing a, a set amount of Ethereum through a mixer. You can tell that, okay, that's automated. And you can see that their automation was more refined, that they were more prepared that second time around. And we should probably touch on too, what exactly we mean when we say a bridge heist, right? So this is part of the sort of decentralized financial infrastructure that you've seen grow in some ways as a response to the concern that centralized targets like a cryptocurrency exchange present a lot of security flaws and challenges. But I think what we've seen from these bridge heists is that there's also some security flaws and weaknesses there. But what's, you know, generally is going on when we talk about the compromise of a bridge heist, uh, of a bridge rather, when these these heists have been happening, what exactly are the threat actors doing to target and exploit them? Yeah. So first, you know, what is a bridge, right? If you want to move cryptocurrency from one protocol or blockchain to another, right? For example, if you want to move something between Ethereum and Bitcoin or a third crypto, you need to use bridges. These are called cross-chain bridges. And what often happens is the funds will be pooled into a single wallet uh, or a single account associated with that bridge. So, you know, then threat actors will target that bridge because it's it's a big jackpot, right? If they can if they can hit that successfully, then they can pull out millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. And that that's quite the payday. So to do that, one of the favorite tactics that we see is phishing. And North Korea is so good, so effective at phishing. And, and they, they use it because it works, you know, and they've been doing a lot of employment scams, especially. And, and, and you know, Barney can talk about it a little bit too, where we see that they'll go out onto job sites and they will pull down different sections from job listings to create a, a job listing and send it to someone and be like, hey, you know, they'll, they'll pretend to be a recruiter. And sometimes it's just a, a very low level, you know, malicious PDF. And, you know, that that's the fish. Sometimes it's more elaborate and it'll be, you know, multiple stages. They'll actually push people through interviews and they're feeding off of, you know, people's desire for more, more money, more compensation. Yeah, maybe that's another thing we can touch on it has been their focus on crypto that has involved not just necessarily targeting individuals and entities associated with cryptocurrency projects, uh, but also trying to get jobs themselves within the ecosystem. And I think this, again, points to this being a full spectrum kind of focus on the industry. But maybe we get into a little bit of that, what that's sort of looked like this year, because um, this is some of the research actually that's been public uh, that's been reported on, which is, you know, trying to get, you know, roles within some of these projects. And now potentially you're dealing with an insider threat as opposed to just the external targeting, phishing, et cetera, of employees. Right. And it's actually really pretty scary if you think about it. You know, imagine you're, you're hiring someone and you don't know that they work for a regime where they, they want to enable malicious cyber actors inside of your network. So what's typically you know, an external threat that you're, you know, you're, you're focused on around the perimeter, it really does become that insider threat. And we've seen, they're, they're called IT workers, right? DPRK IT workers. The US government came out with an advisory on it earlier this year, around May or June, I think. And, and we're, we're tracking a variety of these IT workers. And what they do is they'll try to get freelance jobs. They will apply for regular jobs. They also focus a lot on crypto. 
And part of the reason why they focus on crypto, they'll, they'll focus on DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations. They focus on those because they're not as regulated. You don't have to show an ID and do what is it, a W-4 and all that to get a job at a DAO, right? You just hop on a Discord and you start volunteering for things and people will work you with tokens. Well, then these IT workers can take those tokens and either vote for malicious proposals or they can take those, convert it into crypto of their choice and send it back to the regime. Let's talk a little bit also about the laundering aspect of this, because you referenced this a little bit earlier with how they were cashing out, for example, from some of the bridge compromises. And obviously, one of the other, I think, kind of big news stories that happened this year when it comes to North Green Threat Actors and crypto has been the government's increasingly focused to try to crack down on some of those tools and protocol and code that has been utilized or leveraged by the North Korean threat groups in kind of the aftermath of the operation. So regardless of where they're getting the funds from, whether it's a bridge compromise, an exchange compromise, they compromise some whales account on an exchange. However, they're, they're now trying to like launder that money. They're trying to kind of erase the trail. One of the challenges in the space is because of the nature of most of the blockchains that we see, the public blockchains, there's a degree of openness that allows you uh, to, if you're a researcher or law enforcement or whoever, to track the kind of progression of those funds and where they go. So how have we seen these groups associated with North Korea maybe put more effort to or try to experiment with new ways of getting around that? Yeah, so I view it as kind of a multi-stage process, right? So first, they, they have to get the funds right? Whether through a bridge heist, through compromising someone's wallet, what have you, first they have to get the funds. Then they try to wash or launder those funds somehow. That might be sending it through a mixer. It might mean that they're doing peel chain where they'll send from one wallet to the next wallet to the next wallet. And you'll have just a dozen transactions from one wallet to the next moving the funds. More recently, since the sanctions that, that Treasury's put out, what we've been seeing is it's almost like a tour network of smart contracts that they'll use where they have smart contracts that will auto forward funds from one address to the next, to the next. And it makes it difficult to track because of the, the way that the, the smart contracts interact and, and the speed. So and just the volume of it. So we're, we're seeing that, but then they have to cash it out, right? After they do mixing of some sort to try to launder the funds, how do they turn that into fiat? How do they turn that into funds that they can actually use? Very often what we see is compromise exchange accounts is what they'll, they'll use. If it's not compromise exchange accounts, then exchange accounts they set up with fake identities. So they might go out and, you know, this goes back to optimism bias, no fish too small. Well, if someone has an account at a popular exchange and, you know, DPRK actors have managed to, to compromise that account and the user never noticed, then they can change the making information and they can have, you know, begin to move those funds into actual real fiat that they can control by cashing out. And this has been changes. an area, you know, long before crypto was on the scene that North Korea has focused on and, and, you know, looked at different ways to do sort of, you know, illicit financial activity, all the various, you know, projects and, and you know, criminal activities that they're involved in. Um, they've built up a lot of experience in money laundering. So I think that it, no surprise that we see them continuing to be very creative in this new kind of burgeoning space of finding ways to evade sanctions and evade some of the, the financial tracking that comes about as a result of their, their activity. I want to shift gears a little bit and zoom out and Joe and get your perspective, not just necessarily on the North Korean activity with its focus on, on crypto this year, but what are some of the things that you're seeing as interesting trends that individuals 
maybe that are investing in this space or find it interesting or involved in some way, what are some of the things that you think they should be thinking about when it comes to security around cryptocurrencies? What are some of the interesting trends that you've seen this year that you think are sort of relevant or, or something to keep an eye on? Everything. <laughs> I mean, obviously, the, the bridge compromises, I think, have been some of the, the high level ones. And I think, again, get to this right. point of, you know, as there's been a shift to decentralized financial tools and protocols, I think what we've seen is that if security is not baked in by default, there's still weaknesses there that even if it's not as centralized as some of the other targets in the ecosystem still present, you know, potential opportunities for the adversary to, to focus on. When it comes to crypto, organizations should be careful of how they're storing their funds. And they should keep in mind that a lot of folks are focused on, you know, Web3 attacks, right? Or, you know, attacks on the protocols, flash loans, things like that. But really what we're seeing is Web2 attacks work against Web3. These major bridge heists we're seeing, most of the time, that's not because of a weakness in, in Web3 and how it was implemented. It's a weakness in the organization that's running it. Right. It's a weakness in, you know, that they still have vulnerabilities that, you know, are web too. Like we mentioned earlier, spear phishing. Right. That's really the thing to keep in mind. Don't focus purely on the the crypto aspect, but the context around it. And even within these decentralized entities, you still have a centralization of a team or developers that are working on these projects and they can be targeted. Right. And, and just imagine, you know, what if you have a popular uh, decentralized finance project and there's a DPRK IT worker in there and they swap out one of the, the Ethereum addresses or you know, one of the other crypto addresses from something legitimate to something that actually funds, you know, that's owned by the regime. Now the regime is going to be getting passive income from that project and it can be cleaned up. Sure. But it's, it's going to be a mess because, you know, once a smart contract is out there, you can't take it back, right? With with a few exceptions, you, you can't undeploy a smart contract. One of the things I want to get your take on, uh, when we've talked about this before, and I think we talked about this a little bit on the episode with, with Chain Analysis, which is why the sort of the issue around Monero. So crypto jacking is still a problem. We saw this in, in Google Cloud's recent Threat Horizons report that the predominant type of incident to deal with is, is crypto jacking, crypto mining, utilizing the infrastructure, uh, in a surreptitious way that the user of that infrastructure doesn't intend or doesn't even know about in a lot of cases. So this is still continues to be a problem. And, you know, as far as I'm aware, the vast majority of the mining that goes on is Monero. And Monero is, you know, by default, one of these more privacy-oriented coins. We've seen a few of the other years, like Zcash and Dash and others that are trying to address some of, they would argue, flaws within protocols like Bitcoin, that are open and that people can track the funds from wallet to wallet. This is why we see these mixers and other sort of things to get around that for those protocols. But there's trying to they're trying to bake more anonymity by default into these privacy coins. Again, Monero being one that we see, I think historically the predominance of crypto jacking and mining is utilizing that that protocol in that coin. Why don't we seem to see more usage of it as an actual currency though? And this has been one of the questions I've had you know, expecting to see more of an adoption of that. And it doesn't seem like we've seen that beyond the actual mining itself. I have been waiting years to see Monero become like the preeminent ransomware, you know, payment method. And it just hasn't happened. Right. There, there, there hasn't been the traction for it. You know, there's a few threat actors that do want the payouts of Monero, but why don't we see more? And for a few reasons, one is when we see crypto jacking, 
the payouts for crypto jacking, the actual mining is typically going to a pool. Well, some pools allow payouts in other cryptocurrencies. So they may be mining Monero, but actually be getting paid out in Ethereum or Bitcoin or another cryptocurrency. So that's one thing to keep in mind. Another is availability. It's easy to, to, to have someone go out and purchase Bitcoin. It's There's also a, a low barrier for entry to teach someone how to use Bitcoin. Teaching someone how to use Monero, it's a little bit more complicated. It, it takes a little bit more knowledge, finesse, and time. And one other thing I was thinking about the other day is skill sets. As we're seeing ransomware as a service, as we're seeing the professionalization of those kind of malicious cyber activities, what skill sets do you think are out there? Do you think there's more folks out there who have skill sets in smart contracts? Or do you think there's more folks who have experience in Monero? There's a larger community for Bitcoin, for Ethereum. I think it's easier to find someone with that expertise and to hire them to do things than it is to find someone who specializes in Monero. Yeah, that makes sense. To turn this back to to the North Korean context and, and thinking about this from the standpoint of, okay, you understand now, you know, the variety of different groups that are out there and there are the specific TTPs that they're utilizing to compromise, as you noted, both big and small entities in the space. I think one thing that we're seeing a lot more of is a lot of our customers in the financial services space are getting involved in some way. So I think a lot of them are, are realizing this is a, an issue that they have to kind of keep awareness on of, of these different groups and what they're doing. From the standpoint of the network defender, what are some of the things that you think are most useful from a countering this type of threat um, standpoint, from detecting it, from, from focusing on how you would prevent or thwart some of these operations? What are some things that they should be doing? Should, what are those, some of the things that should be kind of the top of their list? One threat that I really think cannot be overstated is, is the IT worker threat that we mentioned earlier, because there's thousands, if not tens of thousands of North Koreans out there trying to get jobs at legitimate companies, and they're succeeding. We see where they've gotten gigs from real companies. We see where they've deployed smart contracts on behalf of others. We see this. And so if I am a network defender and I want to find DPRK IT workers in my network, I'm going to look for tools like uh, any desk. I'm going to look for tools like TeamViewer. I'm going to look for those kind of remote desktop tools that are on the laptops for my remote employees. And then I want to see who is remoting into those machines because that you know that that's the idea, right? You get a company-issued laptop and then you're going to enable a North Korean IT worker to remote into that laptop. How do you do that? You, you need to have a tool like TeamViewer installed. And I would take a look at those logs and see what those logs look like. Look for folks who have improperly installed those applications. And a lot of this, like I, like I mentioned earlier, it's it's in the advisory from the U.S. government. I promise it's not a bad read. To, to me, I found it really fascinating. My wife will tell you I'm, I'm a very boring person, but I, I think it's it's a that advisory is a good read. And kicking this back over to you, Barney, in terms of zooming out now from kind of the tactical to the higher level macro viewpoint, and we probably in many ways should have kicked off with this, but why organizations should really care about what North Korea is doing in the space? I mean, again, we're all having this this podcast, this episode, because I think, you know, we, we think that it matters. And obviously, both of you have been heavily involved in kind of spearheading the internal efforts here to do more to focus on these different groups and tracking what they're doing. But why kind of at a, at a high level overview, you know, with what's happening and, and right now within North Korea and how 
we believe they're utilizing some of these th- funds that they're stealing, that they're laundering, et cetera. What's sort of the, the large kind of big picture that people should keep in mind? You know, maybe if they they're quick to discount North Korean threat actors and say not as interesting or sexy as what we see from Russia or China. Well, I, I think we got to look at, again, like you said, stepping back, we got to look at what the goal of all of this is. And I think that, I mean, even in the last few days, so like, so if you're, if you're an organization that deals with international relations or governments or military type stuff, you're like, all right, that's cool. That's espionage. I got it. If you're a bank, you're like, this is financial. I got it. Cool. And then it's like, but what is the point? Like, what is the end game? And I, and I think I've said it on a couple different, even if I didn't say it on the last one with you, Luke, but it was, it's, you know, after 9-11, everyone became such a, a counterterrorism expert. And, you know, right now we are, I thought we were like maybe a year, maybe 12 months away from a, a nuclear capable North Korea. Why do we need to wait a year, wait a year before we become a North Korea expert? You know, try to be a little more proactive about it, but we've already been beat to the punch in the last two days, we've seen 30 ballistic missiles pop off. As of right now, we have, that was two days ago. Yesterday, I think there was an ICBM involvement. I don't, I think there was some mixed reporting coming back on that. And then just now I'm looking on my side screen over here and there's about 180 North Korean planes that are kind to, trying to stir the pot because the joint US-South Korean um, exercise is going on. So it's not about being a financial defender being, oh, North Korea can't get our money. Cool. Can't be an espionage guy going, oh, we, we, we didn't let them get our secrets. Cool. But like, you got to marry all of it up. What is the whole point? The point is the weapons development program. We are trying to counter, if, if, if you didn't care about finances and you didn't care about traditional soft defending of espionage, do you care about a tiny tactical nuclear armed North Korea that has the ability to strike a U.S., a South Korean or a Japanese uh, land? Suddenly you become much more interested because siloing yourself pigeonhole and just you know, like this is all i need i'm looking for the money that only involves money this is uh no there's a bigger game going on and when you really take a step back and you see oh as a defender i saw this hit my firewall I, this is bad think about why why is it hitting your firewall they're trying to, to get this money someplace and it's going to develop and it's going to be a bigger situation and you, you think that we had time but with the the frequency, the volume of what they're launching. I mean, the the one two days ago where they launched at least 23, that's huge. That's huge. And then we already know that they're in, and based on some of the stuff we're seeing, we have very unique insights into a lot of the APTs on why they're doing it and what they're doing. And some of the things we're seeing is, you know, hey, North Korea is very interested in Japan's defense budget. Why? You know why? Like this is this, everything plays a part and it, it's kind of, it's, it's very difficult for this country. However, it's very simple whenever you, whenever you go back to one thing, the one thing is the only thing that matters is that North Korea is on at the global scale. We're already starting to sh- see them shed uh, dependencies on China and Russia. They are being a soul. They want to be their own entity. And the only way to make that better and to make everything better to include the famine and the starvation, the agricultural issues within the country, if they have a nuke, we we saw what Russia did and how much they got away with because they had a nuke. And I mean, what we've seen in the Ukrainian conflict, we're like, wow. Now imagine if North Korea also had the same capabilities because they're they're they act crazy aggressive now, and they're just kind of bluffing at this point. Let them get a new, more arm, and then they're going to get even more aggressive in their operations. And so I think that. We got to stop looking at the the nuts and bolts, ones and zeros. We got to step back and be like, oh, okay, this is like potentially years and years down the road, you know, with a nuclear weapon, 
thousands, thousands of people could die. It's not just this IP is hitting your firewall. There's a bigger game going on. And so we really need to take this threat seriously, especially in the last two days when we know that, oh, I thought we had time. No, they're launching a bunch of them now. Okay, they're they're very close. Yeah. And suddenly that compromise or theft from some DeFi bridge that as a policymaker, you may not be paying attention to much or, or care much about suddenly has a lot more importance and, and potential impact. Barney, that's a fantastic point to leave it on. And thank you again for, for coming on here and talking about what you're seeing. I think there's going to be a lot more in this space, both on the North Korean uh, side of things that obviously, you know, it's not going away. It's not slowing down. They're continuing to be active. And there's these continued evolutions in groups and operations that I think will be interesting to, to keep an eye on as it feeds back into the to larger picture of what they're trying to do. And then also on the on the crypto side, I know we're, we're doing a lot more in that side of things. So, Joe, I'm sure you're going to be back on here talking about more of some of these operations uh, as we progress into next year. But thank you both, gentlemen. Enjoy the rest of your day. Heck yeah. Thank you. Thanks, bud. Hey, have a good one, man. Take care.